We started small. We started turning on free public Wi-Fi outside of any location that Land Lakes owned or managed. So our plants in rural places, our warehouses in rural places. And we saw people driving up and sitting in the parking lot and doing Zoom school with their kids like on day one. A mom sitting in a minivan with four kids of different ages doing homeschool outside of a plant we have in central Minnesota. That gives me goosebumps to think about that. Welcome to Consensus in Conversation. I'm your host, Connor Gaughan. Today, I'm talking with Tina May, Vice President of Rural Services and Chief of Staff to the CEO at Lando Lakes. Lando Lakes is one of America's leading agriculture and food companies. You've no doubt seen their products, like butter, while shopping for groceries. After an impressive tenure in public service with the U.S. Senate and the USDA, where she was a big part of helping get two bipartisan farm bills passed, Tina has brought her brilliance and business creativity to Lando Lakes where among so many great initiatives, she's helping to develop the American Connection Corps. Tina's career has given her great insights on the agriculture industry, the intersection between the public and private sector, and how certain policies and companies can work together to do better for American communities, particularly in our heartland. I'm so excited to get you on the podcast to talk. I think there's so much fun that you have in your career and so many insights and so much cool stuff you're doing, Lando Lakes is doing. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, you're welcome. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. Yeah, I am from a family farm in north central Iowa. My folks are still there on the farm. We raise cattle. Uh, and had a number of other things happening on the side, like a, a lot of diversified farmers do and, and did back in the 80s and 90s. We're close to the farm. We're, we're not that far um, here at Land Lake, so I get down there every chance I can. So speaking of getting out to the farm, I think that most Americans who live in big cities or suburbs may not have the most accurate picture of life beyond our own bubbles. And I'm curious, as someone who spends a lot of time in all types of American communities— What do you think the biggest misconceptions around rural America are? Yeah, good question. I think this could be a separate podcast just in itself. I think a lot of times it is my experience uh, that some may have this, this perception that rural is less than or that people wanted to leave or get out or choose something else but couldn't. And I think that's really wrong. Um, I think rural is something you choose. Rural is is a place you want to be. And rural is is a lifestyle to aspire to. And the older I get, I actually think that is more true, right? That people aspire to that and and to be in that place. Um, I grew up at the end of a dead-end road. And this road used to be a stagecoach path. (laughs) It is like... It is nothing, right? When you, what the, the picture you have in your mind is exactly what it looks like. But I think there's something that driving past a dead end sign every day does to your psyche. And I'm a first generation college graduate and no one ever expected anything of me. So I think the fact that you could come from that place and you could um, show up 
and compete with folks that maybe went to a high school that had more opportunities or uh, proximity to more cultural uh, activities or things like that. I don't know. It sort of puts this chip on your shoulder and you're like, you know, like, watch me now. You know, I can do, I can do this too. I can compete with you. So where, where did you study? I went to undergrad at the University of Minnesota. Excellent. What, did, what was your major? <laughs> oh, I studied um, agriculture and German. Awesome. We've been interviewing and recording with all sorts of folks with lots of cool jobs, from Navy SEALs to physicists, but I think you may be my first grain merchandiser <laughs> and logistics coordinator. <laughs> Could you give us a bit of your career path? Yeah. Um, physicist, dang. Well, I'm not that. <laughs> um, I will tell you, I, I went to the University of Minnesota because I wanted to run away from the farm. I wanted nothing to do with agriculture at all. And um, it wasn't until I was probably about halfway through that I thought, oh my gosh, agriculture is so much more than herding cows, right? Yeah. Waking up early to feed cows or milk cows and bills to pay, right? There, there's yeah. such a wide world. Uh, and I wasn't, it wasn't until I was exposed to that that I thought, oh my gosh, I love agriculture. I love yeah. rural America. I could make this my career. Yeah. And I called home, right? This is in the days of landlines. And my, my dad answered on the phone in the barn and we had baby cows. Baby cows are really loud when they're hungry and bellering. You know, he gives me this, what? What do you want? I said, dad, I declared my major today. And, you know, and he's like, what does that mean? What is that? And I, I told him, you know, here's, I'm going to study agriculture in German. And he said, you want to be a German farmer like me? He said, why couldn't you have been a teacher or a nurse? Uh, he's, he's still, I swear he's still mad about it to this day. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was so disappointed. <laughs> but um, my first job after college, I worked for a grain trading firm called the Schooler Company. They're headquartered uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. And this was when uh, there was an active grain exchange here mm -hmm. here in Minneapolis, and we were we were there on the grain exchange. I was on the corn desk on the corn team, so I was selling futures on the Sh Chicago Board of Trade. Yep, it was fun. It was a great first job out of college. Yeah, I, I want to stop and talk about the USDA for a while. So, how did you get from there to the USDA? Give us some of the the highlights along the way. Yeah, um, I loved that job. It felt like a job trading grain. It felt like a job I thought I, I'd never have the opportunity to get. So I was really yeah. grateful for it. But along the way, I learned, I think I liked, at the time, I thought I liked the wrong things about the job, right? I loved when USDA would drop a WASD, right? A World Ag Supply and Demand Estimate, <laughs> right? And, and those periods of time that are big moments for grain traders, things that move markets. Yeah, I wanted to know more about policy and politics around agriculture. And yeah. I, I thought the only way to do that would be to quit and move to DC. So that's, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> yeah. Which I think probably motivates quite a few 20 somethings to, to move to DC. For those who don't live here, like I do, the city is populated with a youthful energy that I find generally pretty inspiring because it's so hopeful and optimistic and energizing to like, these are people that come to D.C. to try to make the world a better place in whatever area of policy or politics they care about. It's, it, and regardless of political affiliation, it's just super inspiring to me, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, energy, the energy in the city and on Capitol Hill, there's nothing like it. Yeah. 
You've had a ton of interesting jobs in Washington, D.C., had a pretty important role at USDA. And it's a, an agency that I think impacts all Americans in really profound ways. But I don't think it's that well understood by most Americans. And so I'm wondering how you would help connect the dots for the average family that, you know, what the USDA is, and especially what it is relative to their day to day lives. Yeah, good question. The USDA is enormous. Well, it has 100,000 employees. Yeah. It has 29 agencies and eight mission areas. It was started um, in the mid-1800s after President Lincoln signed a bill into law starting the department. At the time that USDA was started, half of Americans lived on farms. Right. So just to put that into context. And now today, you know, 1% of Americans farm. Right. So wow, quite the shift. USDA does impact every family every day, like you mentioned, Connor. A lot of it, though, is very quiet and behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. If you think about food safety, food inspections, right? Ensuring that the food that you eat is safe to consume, right? That's USDA. But USDA plays a, a huge role in climate change and being proactive, working every day with farmers and ranchers, providing technical assistance and expertise, providing um, safety net programs for farmers and ranchers. Uh, so it's a lot. In one other particular period in your time in D.C., I know you were heavily involved in um, passage of the Farm Bill, which is something that's getting a lot of press right now. And also, having myself lived here a while, I know that when something like that gets done, the stories from the trenches are pretty awesome. And so I'm curious, <laughs> give us some of your like, you know, your, your favorite stories from how y'all got that done. Because it was, it's unique in that it, was, it required everybody to kind of come on board. And so you had bipartisan... You had to work in a bipartisan manner to get there. Yep. The farm bill that Congress is working on right now, it expires at the end of September of this year, 2023. The farm bill is written in five-year cycles, so it comes due every five years. Yeah. And the farm bill itself, at the end of the day, is a massive piece of legislation, right? When you look at it, when it's printed after it's done, uh, it's a thousand pages long, right? The 2014 Farm Bill had over uh, 600 individual decision points that USDA needed to work through and get out the door during implementation. Wow. So I worked on uh, two different Farm Bills, uh, both for the Senate Agriculture Committee, the, what, what became the 2008 Farm Bill and then what became the 2014 uh, Farm Bill. It is um, one of the best things I've ever been a part of. Both of those teams were incredible. But you said something really important, and that's the bipartisan nature of those bills. I think the agriculture committees, they really do still tend to be incredibly bipartisan. Yeah. So let's get we'll move into the land of lakes land. Let's talk about the company itself a little bit, though. So 2020, from what I read, land of lakes produced and sold around 300 million pounds of butter. It's a lot of butter. <laughs> a lot of butter. <laughs> but beyond that, give us a sense of the company and it, the scale of its operations and the, you know, the scope of it as an organization. Sure, my pleasure. Land Lakes is a Fortune 200 farmer-owned cooperative, right? So fundamentally what that means is the farmers 
uh, own us, right? The, the dairy farmers and also the, the local farmer owned cooperatives through our ag retail network, Winfield United, uh, they own us. So whenever we make money, we turn around and we pay dividends or patronage to those farmers that own us. Yeah. So at its basic level, if you want to talk about rural wealth creation, the cooperative business model is the way to do it. Yeah keeping money in those rural communities, right? Keeping the wealth in the towns, on the farms where it is generated to re- for that dollar to turn around and stay invested in that community. Yeah. Why do you think that model is so unique to, to agriculture? Because you don't see it a, a ton of other places. Because I think farmers are smart. And I think they want to they wanna hold the value and the wealth on their own farm, in their own pocketbook. And I think this model, this business model, is a way to do that. Yeah. One of the other stats I read is that last year, Land Lakes had 237,000 tons of carbon sequestered, which added, if I'm not mistaken, around 4.5 million into farmers' pocketbooks. So talk to us about sustainability broadly in agriculture and then and how you guys view it at Land Lakes. Yes. Okay. So... When I came to Land Lakes about seven years ago, I came to help start our sustainability team. At the time, the task was to help farmers save money or make money through sustainability. And what you just said, Connor, that stat, holy yeah. smokes. That right. is what that team has done in seven years, right? They have returned over $4 million directly to farmers through their on-farm management practices or their conservation activities, climate smart ag, regenerative ag. There's a lot of ways to define this today, yeah. right? But at the end of the day, it's through the ingenuity and the work ethic of farmers and the ability to put one foot in front of the other and try something new, and that yeah. is not that is not easy all the time when you've got a farm that you you figured out how to get yield, how to best manage your land, right? How to deal with all of the headwinds coming your way. So for those farmers to take a risk to try something different or try something new to be more efficient in their operations, I think that should just tell you that American agriculture is in great hands. I think this next yeah. generation of farmers totally are brilliant. Yeah. So Lando Lakes in particular has done some really inspiring stuff, particularly under your leadership on the sustainability team. And I want to talk about those initiatives a little bit. Let's start with one of the biggest and coolest projects, the American Connection Corps. Yeah. Okay. I will say um, this was during COVID. This was 2020, the very beginning of the pandemic, like right away, the first day, our CEO said rural areas are going to get hit hit harder because they are already underserved, right? The hospitals are understaffed if they have a hospital. We knew the statistics about rural hospitals shutting down, but more so, we knew that rural America was woefully underconnected and they had big pockets where they weren't connected at all to sure. high-speed broadband internet. So we got busy really quick thinking through what we could do about that right away. We started small. We started turning on free public Wi-Fi outside of any location that Land Lakes owned or managed. So our, mm-hmm. our plants in rural, rural places, our warehouses in rural places, 
And we saw people driving up and sitting in the parking lot and doing Zoom school with their kids like on day one, right? Like a mom sitting in a minivan with four kids of different ages doing homeschool outside of a a plant uh, we have in central Minnesota, right? That gives me goosebumps to think about, to think about that. What happened next was we started calling others. We just started cold calling partners, um, folks we worked with, uh, folks we, we knew. And that was done at the highest levels of our organization. And we pulled together a group that we dubbed uh, the American Connection Project. And we had five organizations that jumped in with us right away. The Mayo Clinic, right? And their need was for connectivity for their rural hospitals and clinics and their patients to connect into their hubs. And we pulled together a coalition to advocate for a robust investment in broadband infrastructure. And that then turned into um, the $65 billion that you see in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that was signed into law last year. Yeah. Right. So, we ended up with 176 organizations jumping in and joining that effort. And I think the coalition part is really important because we all yeah. collectively pushed in different ways. You know, Mayo Clinic could come with us to an ag committee meeting, right? Or we could go uh, with someone from the financial services industry to the banking committee to talk about this importance. Um, it really hit all aspects of the economy. But then something happened. I was on the phone with someone and we were talking about, this was before the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed. And we were talking about how the money would be implemented, right? So we were thinking like six steps ahead, how the money would be implemented, how we would ensure this funding would go towards unconnected and underconnected communities, urban and rural. And this person on the phone said, well, what do you mean? What do you mean rural communities don't have a grant writer at City Hall? What do you mean rural communities uh, have a volunteer mayor? Right? Like they were like, no way. They were laughing. It was like a cartoon anvil was dumped on my head. Because it was, we are, we are overlooking the main problem here, right? We are, we are just like blowing right past it. We are, we are making this too complicated where we need to think through ways we can help these communities that we knew were already last on the list to receive help, how we could help them stick their proverbial hand in the air and say, Hey, no, over here, don't forget about me. So some very smart person was talking with me about contemplation, right? And like using, like very basically using your imagination to put yourself in a situation and use your five senses, like just do it right now, right? To think about what that is like and what the steps you need to take to to problem solve against that, right? It's just very basic. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, we need to put bodies in these communities. How are we gonna do this, right? These people, there's no grant writer in Stacyville, Iowa, right? There's nobody in the county that's getting paid to write a grant, let alone build um, a stakeholder team in the county 
to bring everybody together to go apply for these funds. So this is where this idea of the American Connection Corps came from. The thought was, let's take, let's take folks who are wanting to move back to their rural hometowns or are currently in their rural hometowns that have a penchant for public service. Let's give them a, a two-year fellowship. Let's teach them how to do fundamental community organizing. And let's give them the tools they need to do the grant writing, to bring people together, right? Let's give them the Rolodex they need to call folks when they get stuck and solve these problems. That is what the American Connection Corps is today. Yeah. Imagine implicit in there also, let's give them a community to be a part of that's all working through this together. It's beyond the Rolodex to troubleshoot, just to have a peer in a comparable community in another state, thinking about the same things, you know, that fellowship actually, fellowship in the, in the sense of fraternal fellowship probably makes a ton of difference for these um, folks. Yeah, so it's a cohort model. There's a lot of focus on people, place, and possibility is how we like to frame it. There are 75 of these fellows to date, right? So this, this program will hit its two-year mark this August. Congratulations. All fellows have AmeriCorps status, which feels really good because with AmeriCorps status comes certain advantages, including an education stipend at the end of the fellowship. And it just comes with a certain resume builder to say you were an AmeriCorps fellow. But more so, I think these American Connection Corps fellows are, I think, the best thing in public service today. I am so proud of especially this first cohort saying yes and jumping in and moving to these communities. And I think when you start to unlock problems, it gives you other problems to solve. And I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. We've had a lot of success. These fellows have had a lot of success. The the grant writing work, the flywheel is turning. These fellows have applied for 88 grants, you know, representing over $50 million. You know, I like to think about it as, you know, these are communities that probably wouldn't have seen any of that work. And in a lot of times in rural communities, when you when you start talking about numbers and volumes, it's a slippery slope because sure. it's rural for a reason. There's not a lot of volume, right? There's not there's not when you talk about households or people served, it's it's a tricky statistic to use. But when you start start talking about Gage County, Nebraska, and one of the fellows is responsible, solely responsible for connecting 1,000 households to the internet that never have had it before, right. that's an entire town. That's two entire towns, three entire towns, right? That's an entire corner of the county where kids didn't go to school during the pandemic, where grandma couldn't log on and check a basketball score of their high school kids, you know, and unlocking all of the other work potential. You've told me in the past a couple, one in particular, of your success stories that you're most excited about, but I'm curious if you have any success stories from your fellows that um, you'd want to pass along today. Any any favorites that you think um, are worth trumpeting. Yeah, it's hard to pick favorites, but um <laughs> I, well, and I will say right, it's it's everyone all of these fellows they're all working so hard and doing their best in the communities in which they serve, right? Yeah. So they're all doing great work for and with the community. We had a fellow in rural Ohio who ended up building what what became an app 
that allowed others, not just in the, her community or the county, but nationwide, to access the Affordable Connectivity Program. Uh, that's part of the funding that was in that bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, to decrease your your monthly internet bills. Yeah. There was a fellow here in Minnesota who was working to build uh, the Rosetta Stone for his tribal language here in northern Minnesota. And in doing this work, he discovered that in order to keep his tribal elders safe at the very beginning of the pandemic, he first needed to solve the problem of connectivity so he could safely communicate with his tribal elders and and keep them healthy and safe. So he became a fellow to first focus on how do I bring reliable, affordable connectivity to the whole tribe? Yeah. And I personally had a lot of learnings from him. And he, he taught me a lot about tribal government and how you need to think more holistically when it comes when it comes to their their governments and their structure. He was successful in bringing connectivity to his region. But then he he went on to focus on this language project, right? Yeah. And it's 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 the use case really, right? It's it's how you use this infrastructure as a tool. I think in that particular case it's pretty profound in the historical, cultural and importance of heritage within these communities. Well, I mean it actually highlights something we haven't even covered, which is simply the importance of tribal um, cultures in America. And they fall into the the rural American landscape. And so talk about being underserved, but also underappreciated. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not always front of mind. I, I know um, Land O'Lakes has a, quite a few other really awesome and important uh, initiatives and projects um, that kind of fall under the sustainability lens. Uh focused on a variety of things. I'm wondering if you could tell us about some of the ones that you're working on right now or some of the ones that are you're most excited about um, coming up. Yeah. Um, our sustainability team um, falls under our Trutera arm of Land O'Lakes. And that team works with farmers every day and our our farmer cooperative members. So there's a, a couple things going on. And Connor, I'll try to be succinct here, but there's there's one pretty cool project I'll mention. We have a number of dairy farmers out in the state of California that due to increasing regulation on methane emissions, there was some grant funding available to them to install methane digesters on their farms. And one of the things we helped our farmers think through was how do you take methane gas that's coming off an on-farm dairy digester, how do you turn that into renewable compressed natural gas, inject mm-hmm. that into a natural gas pipeline, and send it to L.A. to fuel a fleet of, of city buses? That project is happening today. It just highlights how cool farmers are, I think. And one thing I do want to mention is the technology that farmers need on their farm to do climate 
practices like the one I just mentioned, they require connectivity. They require yeah. broadband connectivity. You need to be able to connect to Wi-Fi and send your data to the cloud in order to be able to even think about installing these practices on your farms, right? It is it is fundamental to every conversation uh, we have about on-farm technology. But also just wow, right? Like the amount of creativity required to even think about that as a possible flow of product or byproduct how who came up with that yeah ag is awesome isn't it it really is yeah so i tend to uh leave the last few minutes to talk about the big picture you know things like agriculture and and food security things like climate change these are giant societal-wide topics. They involve every stakeholder group you could possibly imagine. And sometimes the negativity is just overwhelming. I mean, I remember, uh, was it yesterday or two days ago, the IPCC report comes out and, I mean, talk about gloom and doom. And it feels like we're working across every sector in America to, to make inroads and then we get the the headline. And it's defeating. It's, it's hard. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how you stay inspired. How do you defeat defeatism? Mm, good question. <laughs> you know, we sometimes say to each other here in the office, if not us, who, if not now, when? Yeah. I know that framing can be overused. But one of our partners in the American Connection Project, I think, said it best. And he said, a lot of folks will put duct tape on a structural problem versus going to fix the structural problem. And I think certainly in my own background growing up on the farm, if there's a problem and you live on a dead-end gravel road, right? You're not running into town to get a part to fix everything. You're going to run out to the machine shed, and you're going to see what's in the drawer, right, or what's in the toolbox. And you're going to figure out a way to perhaps duct tape the problem while you build the plan to fix the rest. And I think think that's just agriculture. I think that's just farming. Um, I think that's just our industry to make do with what you've got until you can fix the rest. But one of the things I just love so much about working for a farmer-owned cooperative is the ability to take that longer view, to say, okay, we'll put some duct tape on this problem for today, but tomorrow we are going to get busy with that structural structural change that's needed because we have the ability— uh, sitting in sitting in these rooms with the farmers that own us to take the longer view because they are going to pass these farms to their kids yeah. and their family. And we're able to take that generational view and that longer-term mindset to fix these problems today. Yeah, that's beautiful. I'm not even sure it's a metaphor because it actually is real, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but how much we could all learn from that. Like, let's duct tape it and, you know, we'll get into town tomorrow to get the part or the next day or the next day. But, like, let's do what we can when we can do it. And let's keep an eye on the long game, and that's all you can do. Yeah. I think, too, Connor, you know, there's only there's only so much time. We only have so much time where when you think about what are the vehicles to make that structural change happen, well, in agriculture, more often than not, it's looking at a farm bill, right? It's how can we think about a policy change? Yeah. And like I mentioned, that happens in those five-year increments, Right. So if we're thinking about systemic change, we got to get busy today, right? Because that next farm bill cycles five years away. And yeah. we've got a lot of stakeholder engagement to get done 
ahead of that if we want that change to stick. Yeah. Do you, in general, find ag, the, the people, the community, optimistic? I think you have to be. I think you, I think you really do have to be to work in agriculture. Yeah. Um, and to be as close to farmers as we are uh, here at the cooperative. Yeah. It's such a, I keep saying important, but it's not, that's not even the right word or it's, it's the heart. Oh yeah. I love that you said that. No, it is really, um, you gotta love it and it, it's, it's in your bones. Yeah. It, it's when I, I talked about caring, you know, the community that surrounds these farmers, right? These farmers that are the community, these rural communities, these small towns that we all love so much, whether you're just driving through one, whether you're scrolling Instagram and you're loving that main street, we all have a responsibility, I believe, to do what we can, yeah. right? To care for these communities. Um, love for folks to, to learn more about the American Connection Corps. Where should we send folks? You can check us out at AmericanConnectionProject.com and you can uh, find our work on the American Connection Corps there. If you'd like to apply to be an American Connection Corps fellow, please check that out as well. Uh, we are walking into a recruiting cycle now for the fall, but check out Land O'Lakes too on LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Tina. It was such a fun conversation. And everyone knows where to find Land O'Lakes and the 300 million pounds of butter every year. That's everywhere. We get to see it all the time. Thank you so much, Tina, for the great conversation. Consensus and Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchell and Chandler Bramstead. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to Consensus Creative Director Kate Tucker and our strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'll see you next week.